0: Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where I bring the best founders and investors to help your scale business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. His name is Robert Graham, the CEO of Pillar Elf Group and the partner at SIG, a Search Investment Group. Uh, it's it's our first episode about acquisition entrepreneurship, so I think that you will have a lot of fun uh, getting to know more about Robert and uh, getting to see their other options beyond just starting up a company from scratch and then scaling it. It is possible to go buy a company and scale it uh, as well, and it might be also even a better option for, for some of us depending on, on where you are in terms of your entrepreneurship uh, career. But with, uh, with pleasure, uh, Robert, again, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me on, Mike. Really excited to talk to you today.
0: And... So. Uh, Absolutely. Likewise, uh, I've been waiting for for this episode for for uh, a long time. Not because of you, but because I was looking for <laughs> uh, to it. And uh, yeah, let let us get to know more about you uh, to start with uh, about your background uh, and how did you end uh, falling in passion with uh, with acquisition entrepreneurship.
1: Absolutely, Mike. So um, my background, I was an engineer uh, when I graduated from undergrad, I was an engineer and I worked for a company uh, that had me move all over the country in different engineering and operations leadership roles. And uh, really kind of decided early on that I wanted to own my own business one day. And so um, I uh, did some research on on how to do that. And I, you know, just kind of made the decision myself that the, the best way to go about that was to learn how to buy and sell businesses before Actually, finding one and acquiring one, and so um, I got really lucky, and I got into Harvard's MBA program, and uh, you know, went through that whole program, that MBA program where they teach entrepreneurship through acquisition, which is the whole idea of, you know, you can be an entrepreneur by not just starting companies, but also by going out and finding companies to acquire, and then growing and improving them. Um, you know, so not starting really from zero, but starting from right. two, still getting to 10, right? Um, but, um, and so that's taught a lot at Harvard Business School. It's taught at Stanford, it's taught at Wharton. Um, the, the top MBA programs all have ETA or Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition programs. Um, I didn't actually take many of those classes. I took more of the MA and uh, focused classes Um, That are more focused on like corporate M&A. But when I graduated, I had several classmates uh, who did entrepreneurship through acquisition. They actually did self-funded searches or traditional search funds and acquired small businesses. And, you know, I went to work at a private equity fund and uh, got to see all my, you know, former section mates and classmates uh, had had success doing this. And so um, I decided eventually that, um, you know, after about a year in private equity, I decided to, to go out and, and do it on my own. So I partnered with a, a business partner and, um, and uh, we searched for a year and found uh, a small group of uh, healthcare companies. It was a home health, home care and hospice company, uh, three of them together, uh, commonly owned in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas. And so we ended up acquiring back in 2019 and that's that's really how it all started. Um, I, you know, always wanted a, to be a small business owner, and, and I went down this path and did a small leverage buyout to to start, you know, down the path.
0: Yeah. So a lot of new concepts for the ones who are not familiar with acquisition entrepreneurship, kind of the search funds, the traditional um, um, approach, or the self-funded uh, search uh, approach, but don't worry we will get there and we'll explain this in with a little bit more of the detail a little bit later on but typically yeah. this sounds kind of uh if you don't have an M a background uh, it sounds a bit scary for for people who are listening for uh, uh, uh this for the first time right so and 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 second when you say that you started with a group of free companies from uh scratch so I would say maybe let's let's consider to start with one company it seems that you already started already with with free uh, in mind um, wh- what has been that initial uh, process so as you said in the beginning you have been kind of in the operator role uh, in in a company before then you evolved it into um, into pri- a private equity firm where you got even more exposed to MA. And, and later on, you started um, Pillar Elf Group. Uh, so your, your first group of companies or your first old co, uh, ElfCare old co, right? So how has been this the, the initial spark, the initial movement uh, after the... Um, and, and and how has been the, the search during the initial 12 months that you said it last?
1: Yeah, great. So I'll start with the search, I guess. So, yeah. you know, during the search... Um, a lot of searchers go into search with an industry focused uh, search, right? So they'll spend all their time on like, you know, um, you know, dental offices or, you know, plumbing, or they'll, they'll pick an industry to focus on. I did an industry agnostic search. So I was looking at many industries um, and, you know, with more of a, uh, a focus on industries that had roll up potential. Okay, and so what I mean by roll up potential is um you know uh fragmented industries where there were benefits to scale um where we could you know potentially have a long tail of growth right. uh related to further mergers and acquisitions okay, and there's a lot of examples of roll ups out there y- your listeners probably may be familiar with you know um so you know companies like waste management in the United States, um, you know, uh, Blockbuster before it actually um, <laughs> you know turned to nothing, which is unrelated to its model as a roll-up. But um, that would be another example of a roll-up. Um, there's there's many examples. But so right. I was looking specifically at industries that were um, you know number one uh, could handle leverage, right? So um, there are certain industries that are highly cyclical. So I wasn't looking at in any industry like that, because I knew I wanted to do leverage buyout and multiple leverage buyouts. Mm -hmm. And so, and then the other thing was, you know, looking for something in an industry where um, a roll-up made sense. Um, And so uh, home healthcare uh, and home care um, actually uh, did meet both of those requirements. Um, And so, um, but I looked in in other places as well and it just so happened that these three companies were commonly owned uh, by one owner. And so we went to him and made him an offer and were able to start with three, uh, but they were you know, three small companies. It, it, you God, know, it, and it, if they weren't commonly owned, it would have been much more difficult to start off with three. Uh, and, so, uh, and so after we, we did that initial acquisition, uh, we waited, I think it was about a year and a half, two years, and then we made another acquisition in Oklahoma. Um, and then we made uh, an additional acquisition in Arizona uh, about six months after that. And then our final acquisition was in November of last year. So seven months okay. ago. And, uh, um, and so total now it's six acquisitions. Um, and when we started uh, Pillar Health Group, um, just to give you some idea of the financials behind all this, so right. the initial three company group that we bought was pretty small. It was six million of revenue and one point three million of EBITDA, um, and we ended twenty two uh, at ten million of EBITDA and excuse yeah ten million of EBITDA and exactly. forty million of revenue. So it's been significant is- organic and M and A growth. Um, it's been a mix of the two, but, um, you know, so, so it's, um, uh, we're very happy with the growth we've had over the last, you know, call it three years.
0: Yeah. So, so that's why you almost started with 1.3 million, uh, EBITDA and you were able over, uh, so you started in 2018. So in five years, you, you were able to get to, uh, 10 million, uh, EBITDA, right? So which is, uh, quite impressive.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of work and uh, it's, you know, a mix of organic and M&A, but um, the industry, um, the home health industry in particular, which is the one we picked, um, was a really good fit for this type of strategy. Um, so we were able to acquire providers at, you know, reasonable multiples and, um, you know, and then Basically, bring expertise right. that we've already built up into each business and uh, and grow it further. So, um, yeah, it was. Um, and I'll say also, we were just kind of lucky because the the home health industry did relatively well through the pandemic. So, and that was just you know really by chance. Um, so we were very lucky in that respect because many other areas of the economy obviously didn't do as well and. Um, Especially if you're if you've done a leverage buyout, you know that, that can be a really uh, that can be a really dangerous uh, kind of a situation for someone who's um, acquiring companies with that. Um, but luckily, you know we picked an industry that was non-cyclical and also pandemic resistant
0: right. For the ones so. who are less familiar with the uh, leverage buyouts? Robert can can you just um, walk us through uh, what it means in sure. in simple terms. Huh?
1: So I'll give you an example deal, Mike. So like, uh, I'll give you an, ex- uh, like the, uh, average SIG deal, which is the advisory firm I'm part of
0: where we help we'll talk about.
1: entrepreneurs yeah. buy companies. So the, our average deal is, um, you know, like, I, I think our average is 2.4 million of EBITDA and it's about a four times purchase multiple. So I'm just going to use round numbers. Let's just say two and a half yeah. million of EBITDA, four times multiple. So a $10 million deal. Okay. Yeah. Um, So the purchase price would be 10 million in this example. And the way we would fund that is we would go, um, we'd utilize a series of capital sources because you you gotta come up with $10 million to buy this company. If you're gonna buy out 100% of it, right? And so we would start with debt. And usually on a company like that, we're gonna use like um, a a couple of forms of debt. So in this example, we might use, 5 million of SBA debt, and then we could probably get another million of commercial debt in there. So that's 6 million Mm -hmm. of senior debt, commercial and SBA. Uh, And then we might be able to go out and get a a seller note from the seller. So let's call that another 20% of the the structure so that the seller would actually loan us money to buy their own company. It's very common in small business acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we've got a $2 million cap left. Well, we would go raise that from investors. And so um, what you end up getting is a company that has, you know, $8 million of debt and $2 million of equity put in to acquire this company, which nice. is pretty attractive because you're only putting in $2 million of equity and you're buying a company with two and a half million of EBITDA, right? Nice. So. Two and a half million of earnings, and you only had to put in two million of, of equity. That's that's pretty interesting, right? And um, and that's what that's what all of our deals kind of look like. You know, they're pretty highly levered. Um, and then all being said, we we put debt in place that's a conservative level of debt, right? So when you think about um, how much debt can a company handle, I mean, one key thing you think about is debt service coverage, right? So like. Mm-hmm. How how many how much earnings do I have right. for, for the amount of debt payments I need to make? Right. <laughs> and you want the the earnings to be significantly higher or the, the cash flow that's it's really not earnings, it's the cash flow that's available to pay right. for pay the debt payments. You want that to be considerably higher than what the debt payments are. So that even if the company, you know, shrinks or goes through a difficult time, you'll still be able to make your debt payments. Um, and then there's, there's other things you can do as well, right? So you can get a revolving credit line um, so that you can have extra cash. It's like a big credit card that the company has. Mm-hmm. And if things don't go well, you can use that to temporarily fund yourself. Uh, you can also put cash on the balance sheet. So we always put some extra cash on the balance sheet when we acquire these companies and all those things um, can help uh, reduce risk. Uh, when you do a leverage buyout. But uh, that's what a typical structure looks like for us. And it allows the investors to have a significantly higher return than if you just funded the deal with 100% equity. Because remember the example I just gave, we only had to put in 2 million of of equity for a 10 million purchase price company with 2.5 million of of earnings. Well, if you didn't use any debt, you'd have to put in 10 million of equity and you'd only get two million of earnings two and a half million of earnings right so i mean the returns are magnified you know times a multiple of that right because mm-hmm. i'm only you're only putting in a fifth as much equity in the in the leverage buyout scenario right. i just described and so it means roughly your your expected returns are five times as high
0: yeah. Got it, and and in general, uh, Robert, with with the size of with that with with the deal with this size with this structure that you just mentioned, so kind of a two point five million EBIT business, uh, if you buy it with a four x multiple, it would be a, a ten million purchase price. You said that we would have a debt of five million SPA, um, then another one million of uh, commercial debt. Um, two million of the seller notes and another two million of uh, equity, right? That was uh, more or less the structure to get the the ten million to buy the company. Usually, in this structure, how how much will the entrepreneur get out of the of the in the deal?
1: Well, of you know, that,
0: that's what I yeah.
1: It's hard for me to give you a usual answer because every deal is different, and there's a lot of other things to consider. Um, other than capital structure, right? So okay. left out of the conversation here is, for example, what is the CapEx of the business, right? Got it. So um, also what industry is the business in, right? Got it. Um, Because if you're looking at a cyclical business, you know, investors are gonna expect different returns. They're also gonna expect different returns if there's a lot of, uh, or, or a different piece of the equity if there's a lot of CapEx in the business. You've also got to consider what the entrepreneur wants, right? So the entrepreneur may value having a large salary more or may value having other, you know, benefits more. Maybe they want less upside but more cash today, things like right. that. So there's not a perfect answer to your question. Yeah. Um, but what I'll tell you is what the average is for my firm SIG, okay? Right. So for my firm, uh, on average, the entrepreneur keeps 70, has kept, kept, over the 16 deals we've done over the last two and a half years, they've kept uh, 16, or excuse me, uh, 72% of the common equity ownership in the company. It's incredible. And so after the preferred, so we use a special uh, form of equity. We, we have two classes of equity in the deals that we do. We have a preferred equity, uh, Mm -hmm. security and then we have a common equity okay and the common equity um gets most of its benefit after the preferred equity is Mm -hmm. paid off plus the preferred return um so the entrepreneur would keep in in the you know the statistic i just gave you 72 percent of the common shares which is a pretty incredible outcome right because that means you keep 72% 72% of all money that's distributed out of the company after the preferred is paid down. And also, you know, 72% of the upside um, if you end up selling the company um, at a higher, you know, valuation. So right. um, for most people, owning 72% of a company that's generating two and a half million of, of earnings is life-changing. Imagine. exactly. And so um, that's, uh, that's what really, um, is so rewarding about what we do at sig is we help you know people who want to own their own small business basically change their lives so yeah. um it's been a lot of fun
0: yeah just to do a parallel we, we talk a lot about vc backed companies here on the show and um, if you go to one million arr in a saas business so you get to series a with uh, uh almost 40% of of the business. So if you leave 20% in pre-seed or 15 or 10 to 20, every single round, then another 20% in seed, another 20% in series A. So we have 40% of the company with 1 million, of course, no EBITDA. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and later on, maybe at series C and you are already in a very successful stage uh, in a VC uh, industry, you might get, Uh, the final 20% of of a business of 10 million. So here you are buying a business of 10 million revenue, uh, potentially uh, 2.5 million uh, EBITDA, and you are getting not the 20%, but on average the 72%. Just to kind of compare, uh, of course, that's different uh, different, uh, types of businesses. The upside of a VC-backed business can be uh, higher, but of course the probability of of getting it is is much lower than uh, moving in this direction. Another thing that you that you said is the SBA loan. Of course, this is specific for the US um, audience, and and even the ones who are interested about this in Europe know that uh, this is an instrument that we don't have available in Europe, but it's it's available in the US. The majority of our audience anyway is is based in uh, in the US at the moment. But I want to be respectful of our Global uh, listeners, I'm very grateful for having you guys here. But the SBA loan is kind of an instrument that the U.S. Uh, makes available for entrepreneurs to be able to, um, to buy companies. Um, Robert, can you just explain a bit for the ones who are less familiar, what is kind of the SBA loan in a very simple terms? Because you understand better the vocabulary than than myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, happy happy to explain that, Mike. And by the way, I agree with all the assertion, you know, all the points you just made um vc is all about upside potential right this is uh, a much different path you're buying usually a, a stable company without you know it's probably not going to become a billion revenue company okay right. you know it, we're buying like you know plumbing co- you know large plumbing companies or you know large home health companies yeah you know it's it's just a different thing so um but um what I, what I was going to say, so on the SBA program, uh, one key point, because uh, I know you've are you you know, you've got a lot of non-U.S.-based listeners, you don't have to be a U.S. citizen to take advantage of the SBA program. Um, I, I think you have to be a, a resident of the United States, but the key thing is the company um, has to be headquartered in the United States, okay? So if the company's not headquartered in the U.S., it's not eligible for SBA financing. But the SBA program is a really unique thing that the US has, Um, you know, and for the most part, you know, I don't do a lot of international investing, but my understanding is, is that very few other countries have a similar program. But what it it is, is basically the US government has a a program where they tell lenders, if you lend according, if you lend potential, you know, business owners or, or folks who are current business owners, if you lend, uh, according to these criteria, the U.S. government will guarantee a large percentage of the debt. Okay, and um, historically, that percentage has been—it's fluctuated, but at one point it was 75%, and uh, it's gone to 90%. And you know, it changes. But but anyway, long story short, the vast majority of the debt is government guaranteed. And so, let's say the lender makes—you know—this. In this example, you know, there was. Uh, seven eight C- SBA debt of five million in the the transaction we've been discussing. Well, if that company ended up going bankrupt for whatever reason, you know, not being able to repay its SBA debt, mm-hmm. that lender who lent the five million dollars could then go to the SBA, the Small Business Administration of the oh, U.S. government, and say, "Hey, I you know I went through and and I." checked all the boxes and I made the loan according to your criteria. And then the US government would pay for, that would pay the lender for their losses. And the lender Mm -hmm. would walk away with only having to cover like 10% of the $5 million loss. So that really encourages um, the lenders to, um, you know, provide these loans uh, because their their losses are capped uh, to a very small, portion of what you know of of the total loan that's made. It's an incredible program. And, um, you know, some of the pieces of the SBA loan that the SBA loan program that are so attractive to entrepreneurs is you can get up to um, 90% leverage historically. Um, and then even 95% if you use a seller note on full standby. So with no payments. Um, and that's that's changing even because the SBA just changed their rules. Uh, here within the last couple of months, uh, actually, it's uh, it's getting to the uh, the, the new rules. Uh, it, it looks like you you might even be able to to have higher leverage than the ninety five percent. But that means you can put a very small amount of equity in the deal and um, and get quite a bit of debt. Um, and the debt's on pretty attractive terms too. The interest rates are relatively low. Uh, And um, the principal, the the debt principal amount is amortized over 10 years. Um, Mm -hmm. So that means your payments are relatively low compared to most forms of commercial debt. Uh, And then you don't have any financial covenant, right? So uh, most forms, other forms of debt, whether it's, you know, other forms of debt used for acquisitions generally are gonna have financial covenants and they're also, it's not that common to see a 10 year term, 10 year amortization uh, debt. So uh, it's pretty attractive debt and it's, um, it also allows you to have that amount of leverage like we talked about earlier.
0: Right, So something that might pop up in some conversations when when we share this with, for instance, with uh, other investors um, would be, oh, but maybe this can be a lot of, debt in, in the deal. So ideally, it would be better to have kind of a mix of, you know, 40% to 60% debt and 40 to 60% um, equity. Uh, but it's interesting what you were talking about also, that this program allows you to have a much better uh, interest rate, much better conditions, maybe a, a larger period to, to be able to, to pay back the, the loan. What would be your position on that? For the ones who are worried about having too much debt uh, in in the deal.
1: Well, that's a really interesting point, Mike. So uh, let me use a little bit of the Socratic method on you here. Okay, (laughs) why do why do you think why do you think people uh, are concerned about debt in a in a company like this in an acquisition? What's the reason? Why would they be concerned?
0: I think it's really about if we have enough uh, cash flow, as you said uh, before, and so this should be related with the bit of the business. And that's why it's important to to be a, a business that has a good margin, um, that is able to, you know, to pay for for the growth of the business, for uh, and of course the debt that you need to uh, to to pay in order to to pay the loan, right? Uh, Right. So, I mean, at the end of the in day, a very you just, easy way, as I'm not a, an M&A uh, expert, I'm yeah, not much more an operator. <laughs> you did a great job. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you.
1: what what it, what it comes down to is uh, the reason why you don't want to overlever is because you want to make sure you can consistently make debt payments. Because if exactly. you can't consistently make debt payments, you can get in a lot of trouble really fast. Right. The lender yeah. can take the business from you. Um, it could end up with you it, with SBA that you have to personally guarantee the debt. So it could end up with you having to file, you know, bankruptcy of the company and potentially personally. So right. if you, you have to um, make sure that this company is well positioned to repay the debt. Well, the way typically that you think about that, I mean, the most common way. I'd say most people think about that and most financial institutions think about it is debt service coverage. So that means, like I explained earlier, how much earnings yeah. or cash flow do we have compared to how much um, debt service, basically debt payments we, we have to make, right? right. And so um, you know typically, a common metric would be like one point five times. So basically I've got one point five times as much cash flow as I have debt payments. So, mm-hmm. example would be like um, every year I have to make debt payments of a million dollars a year. Okay, but if I have a million and a half of cash flow to make those debt payments, right. you know, most lenders would say that's probably sufficient because the company would have to sustain, you know, pretty significant um, headwinds. Right, revenue would have to drop, or or margin would have to drop significantly. Before you were not able to make that million dollars of debt payments. If you have a million and a half of cash flow to make it today mm-hmm. um, and historically, um, so that's like a, a typical metric, one and a half times. Um, now, that's that'd be like probably a minimum for most lenders. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of our deals are going to close at like closer to 1.75 times or two times. Uh, we have a lot of deals close at two times. So basically, you're your margins or your your earnings would have to be cut in half before Mm -hmm. you service your debt. And then in addition to that, they'd have to be cut in half for a period of time because the company's got cash, extra cash on the balance sheet, like I described earlier, and a revolving credit line. So you can make debt payments using those other forms of capital for some period of time before you can no longer make debt make debt payments. And then when you get in the situation where look, okay, so even an example, you know, the company's got 2 million of cash flow to service debt and a right. million annual debt payment. You yep. and, and 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 that cash flow gets cut in half or close to it. So you're just barely, you know, below being able to service debt, right? right. So you you would go most of the first year being able to service the debt, and then in the right. end, you know, probably the last, you know, two months, you'd be in a situation where you couldn't service the debt anymore. Okay, and so then what you do in a hypothetical situation like this is you would use your revolving line um, to help pay debt temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also use excess cash you had on the balance sheet, and you might cut some costs, right? right. So. Maybe uh, you reduce spending in some area of the business. Uh, maybe you you know reduce your marketing spend for a while. Right. So you can take yourself probably several more months with all those forms of additional mm-hmm. capital. Right. Then you get to the point where okay, look, we've gone like 18 months, and our you know earnings have been cut in half for 18 months straight. Mm -hmm. So what do we do now? Well, then you go to your lender and you say to your lender, well, you know, I have a plan to get back on track. And Mm -hmm. SBA lenders very commonly. um, And, you know, we work with three of the top SBA lenders pretty commonly in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, They're heavily incentivized to work with you so that you can repay your loan uh, at some point, because if they don't, the SBA is less likely to. To stand behind their guarantee. So it's pretty common for them to just tell you, okay, you can go six months with no interest payments. And so, you know, at that point, you get another six months. You've got to have a plan, obviously, to get back to the ability to service the debt, but you get another six months then. So, you know, you've got two years here, you know, in this scenario we're describing to figure yourself out. So, you know, how bad is the risk really, you know? Um, And and I'll tell you, the deals we're doing, we never acquire companies for over five times earnings, okay? And so when you think about and how much debt is being put on it five times, right? So let's say a five times deal would be, you know, probably 75% levered. Um, That's a similar amount of leverage and debt service coverage as you probably see in a, you know, a middle market private equity deal. So um, really the risk is not that much higher in terms of debt service coverage. Um, It's a little higher because in middle market private equity deals, you're not personally guaranteeing the deal and you're also not buying a company of the size we're talking about. Smaller companies tend to have, there's higher risk, right? They fail at a higher rate. So, Mm -hmm. um, So there is a different, There are different types of risk, but in terms of just debt service coverage, they're pretty similar to most, you know, most normal private equity deals, I'd say.
0: Right. Yeah. And and what we have been talking about just to help the the audience to follow us, we have been talking about the self-funded model of acquisition uh, entrepreneurship, and specifically in the US um, leveraging the SBA program that Robert uh, explained uh, before. And um, there is another uh, model to, to do entrepreneurship for acquisition, which, which is the traditional uh, model. And we will get there, especially the traditional ver- versus self-funded. But I, I wanted to make the point that first, for the ones who are going through VC, uh, the VC routes, it is possible to go through uh, entrepreneurship acquisition routes and kind of compare the risk-reward re- um, uh, scenarios from vc to acquisition entrepreneurship starting with this uh, self-funded approach uh, going through the um, the spa the SPA loan program which was the the one that you used it to acquire your first uh, three companies and and building your um, let's say your your roll up uh, which is called the pillar elf group Group and and now that we have shared so much information, uh, I think that everyone can understand how amazing are the results. So, from six million in revenue in revenue from one point three million EBITDA, you went to forty million revenue, ten million EBITDA, which is twenty five percent of the revenue that you are generating in terms of um, of EBITDA. How has been this process of uh, acquiring the first free and then adding another free? to to the mix, Robert. So just for the, for for people to have a flavor about how has been the process uh, after the. Um, so we know that going through the, the search is already something that that's not an easy uh, exercise, uh, but we we could do an entire episode just about that and also just about the the, the acquisition pro- process and then just about creating the the roll up model, but. What can you share about the, the process of, you know, building your, uh, your old co in, in the healthcare uh, sector? Sure,
1: so I'll say one thing, Mike, I, I do have business partners, so, you know, it's not just me. I've got uh, four business partners yeah. in, in, in the deal. And, um, and then I have minority partners as well. Um, so that's something to, to keep in mind. Um, what I'll tell you though is once you first acquire in an industry, if you're doing a model like mine, and our model I would say is more like a roll-up and less like a hold go. because um, the businesses are all very related, right? They're right. not not all of them are in perfectly the same subsector of the industry, but they're in very similar and uh, in, in complementary service lines. Um, and so so uh, one thing about it is that when you first acquire in an industry, you're really well positioned to do other acquisitions in the industry, much so, more so than if you just came in, you know, from the outside and didn't have any experience in the industry or any other, you know, holdings or companies in the industry. Once you've got a foothold, you, when you're talking, I'll just give you some examples. For, mm-hmm. for one thing, you're much better positioned to analyze future acquisitions in the industry. Right, because you understand, you're going to understand the industry so much better. Right. The other thing is, um, you're much better positioned to talk to sellers of, you know, the 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 other owners of companies in the industry because number one, you can speak to your example and say, hey, look, I acquired, you know, these other companies in the industry, and they've been very successful after acquiring them. Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 kept all the employees, we kept the brand name of the company um gives you credibility you know, to, it, yeah it, it really helps and and when sellers can see that like you know hey my employees really are gonna have a job after that this company's acquired you know after I sell and the company really is going to keep its original name and legacy and things like yeah. that those are important to sellers if you can actually demonstrate that uh and then you can also speak on, on the same Wavelength as the seller, right? So Mm -hmm. when you have conversations with these business owners, you can talk to them about current issues affecting the industry. You can talk about more in depth things about the company. When you're coming from outside the industry and just talking to a business owner, it's much harder um, to to have those conversations. Um, And the owner is always going to be asking himself, can this person actually run this business? they actually buy this company and can they actually run it after they buy it well we clearly can run the businesses because we've done that and grown them um the other thing is um we clearly can buy businesses so a lot Mm -hmm. of people are out there saying they want to buy a small business um might be surprising to some of your audience but there's a there's a whole ecosystem of you know how there's a VC ecosystem there's a whole eta entrepreneurship through acquisition ecosystem And that means there's a lot of people running around, you know, saying they want to buy a small business. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, a lot of those people are not qualified to do that, right? They shouldn't, you know, they're calling business owners and they have no way to come up with the capital to actually buy the company, right? Right. Um, So, um, or, or, you know, they're presenting themselves in ways that are, you know, not exactly accurate. And so business owners, obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. they... They don't know what to believe, right? They don't they don't yeah. know if you're for real and if you can come up with the capital actually by their right. company. And the intermediaries, the business brokers and investment banks, don't either. So if you have a proven track record to show, look, we've you know we've acquired multiple companies, um, then they know, well, this person can come up with the capital, this person can actually make this work. Right. So um, that's made our ability to grow through acquisition so much better. Right. And it's also you know, we've had this continuous learning and compounding effect of learning from buying the first, the first one, learning from that experience and then buying these others and doing it over and over, right? The more times you do something, we learn how to grow organically. We know how to do acquisitions and we've been able to apply that m- multiple times, right? So um, it becomes, you know, have you ever heard the uh, saying, making your first million is the hardest?
0: Yeah, um absolutely a
1: lot of like entrepreneurial people will say say that saying making your um, first
0: acquisition <laughs> making your first
1: acquisition is the hardest too once you make your first acquisition it's much easier from from there generally speaking that's uh I think most people who do this have that takeaway
0: right. so yeah because maybe I was really making the point that you you bought you bought three uh, companies in the beginning but it was really you bought one company that adds three companies, right? So uh, it was not kind of, you know, going through three different processes, buying three different companies at, at the same time. This would be almost a recipe for, uh, for failure for any new person that is starting to, to on this world to, to buy their first company. Right?
1: Well, so, they were three separate companies it's just that they were commonly owned right so okay. it was three separate transactions but they were commonly the owned same... so we were able okay. to coordinate that very easily now if you had three separate companies owned by three separate people that would be very difficult to pull right. off because you'd have different timing of the different transactions and you know just having three close at once is very difficult because um, it a lot of the companies that you look at to acquire in this space don't end up being acquired. there's right. um, there's a lot of there's a lot of transactions that get started that don't end up closing. Right. So just doing that with three total separate owners and everything would be yeah. very, very difficult to have
0: happen yeah so that this is the same owner and it's also important it would be important for you to you know have uh, at least 1 million uh ebitda in the deal that's why it, it was important to have the free companies all together uh, then you have the sum of the ebitdas of the, the different free companies and you got to the 1.3 million uh ebitda right so so maybe below that uh, not sure how to uh cover this but uh Having in mind the audience, uh, if you if you went to buy three companies with 600k uh, EBITDA, so 200k each, it might have not been interested for you uh, as a, an acquisition entrepreneur and to go through the SBA loan program, right? So that's why the typically the threshold, the minimum, is at one million, maybe a, a little bit below, but usually uh, is there, right?
1: Well, that's the minimum for SIG. My advisory M&A firm. That's the minimum uh-huh. for Pillar Health Group, too, right? So both both organizations that I'm associated with, we don't ever buy companies with less than a million of EBITDA. Got it. But that being said, people buy companies with less than a million of EBITDA using the SBA program okay. pretty often, yeah. So okay. you, can, you can buy a company with, you know, a very small company with the SBA program. Um, I don't recommend people do that, um, but you know, people do do that. Um, So people buy, you know, 200K even to companies with SBA loans, Um, it's reasonably common. Um, The problem with that is, you know, just think about your risk versus reward, you know. Um, So when you take an SBA loan, you have to personally guarantee the loan, right? So it Mm -hmm. is a considerable amount of personal risk you're taking. Um, the other thing is if you're only buying a company with 200,000 of EBITDA, you know, and let's say you're buying it for four times, you know, that'd be an $800,000 purchase price and you're putting in 90% leverage. So just round numbers, let's say it's, um, 700, yeah, we'll just say like 700 K of debt in this $800,000 transaction we're talking about. Well, the 700,000 of debt, you're going to have. Ten-year principal amortization, so seventy thousand of principal amortization payments, and then you're going to have you know ten percent interest, which is what floating interest rates are right now. About, uh, I'm all, I'm using all round numbers, so that's another seventy k. Yeah. Right, so you've got one hundred and forty thousand dollars of debt payments coming out of your two hundred thousand dollars, roughly of EBITDA, and I'm not doing a tax adjustment because you get a tax shield. Potentially, and all those kinds of things. These are just round numbers. So, um, yeah. 200,000 less 140, you're only left with $60,000 a year. So, I would tell most people instead of buying the $200,000 EBITDA company, you should probably just go get a job, you know, because you don't have to take like wow. all this risk and like go through all this. You know, it takes a long Got time it. to find a company to buy to. So, most people. The, the better thing to do financially would honestly probably just be to go get a, a high-paying job somewhere. You know, right. that's my advice. Um, that other people have different opinions, sense. obviously.
0: Yeah. And the, the smaller the company, there is also the transition risk, right? So there is may, maybe less uh, management or uh, there is no management layer in the company. Maybe the owner is wearing multiple ads. So when you get in and you don't understand the business and if there is no leadership team or key people around you to support you to to manage maybe a, a new vertical that you don't know uh well it will be again the risk uh, will go up uh a lot it's and uh, yeah. and adding to yeah. the factors that you just mentioned uh, it 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 becomes a nightmare on the other end if you start going to 2 million uh 3 4 5 million a bit uh, then you have uh the um, uh, you have the competitors like uh, private equity funds that can uh, also move fast and uh, and and pay better multiples, and maybe it becomes less interest to um, to not be able to buy well the companies that you are acquiring by the right multiple because you have maybe too much competition from from private equity. Am I right saying saying that and please do what you have been so doing, correcting me that i that is important for the audience yeah
1: I think in general. And your points are correct. Um, So there's downsides to buying bigger and there's downsides to buying smaller. Um, Where Mm -hmm. we like to, where we as SIG specialize is we look for companies that are, you know, a million plus of EBITDA, you know, and our our typical size range is gonna be like one to three and a half of EBITDA, okay? Um, That are in non-competitive processes, right? So, if you think about there's in mm-hmm. the lower middle market, there it's not like um, it's not like uh, companies uh, that are you know publicly traded that are trade you know that would sell at a pretty efficient valuation. There's a lot of companies that are sold in the lower middle market that don't involve an intermediary at all, uh, where the company owner is selling directly to the buyer, and there's not an investment bank or a business broker. Okay. There's also a lot of transactions where there's a business broker involved that doesn't do a good job of marketing the deal, marketing the company. And gotcha. so you'd have a situation where you, know, you might be able to buy a company for a pretty low multiple um, just because other potential buyers you know, aren't necessarily even aware of the company's for sale.
0: Right. So
1: those types of things happen pretty frequently, actually, in the lower, lower middle market. Uh, and that's the type of transaction we like to be in. So, yeah, that's but
0: what it's, we look for. It's a good point, right? So, in, and just to conclude this segment of the show about your story, uh, scaling Pillar Elf Group from 1 million to 10 million uh, in EBITDA, it is really important for the model to work that you buy well, right? At, at the right multiple. Um, so you, you consider that maybe 5 or over 5X uh, it 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 doesn't make too much sense to to buy the company according to this model, right? Um, Well,
1: that's on the self-funded side, okay? Um, For the self-funded model to work where you end up with majority ownership and control of the company, which is what our searchers do at SIG, to end up with 72% ownership, it's very difficult to do that if you pay more than five times, okay? Because the leverage and the, Equity injection just doesn't work out mathematically. You don't have enough debt service coverage. Okay. And so, um, but traditional searchers buy companies for more than five times, even frequently. And so do independent sponsors, which is a similar model. Um, and so do private, small private equity firms. So you can buy for more than five times earnings. It's just that our model in particular within self funded search, um, with that outcome is very difficult to achieve with, if you pay over five times EBITDA. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It helps. Of course, we, we and it's not the purpose of, of the show today to explain uh, the specifics in terms of the numbers and uh, and the financial modeling, but we, we can understand that to make it work on the, the self-funded model, uh, it doesn't make sense to go beyond the, the 5X, but other ways, of acquisition entrepreneurship might work with a, a multiple higher than, than five, right? That, that, that's what I took from from your uh, explanation.
1: Yeah, and I, I do want to caveat all this, Mike, and these are very generalized statements, okay? Right. So like, it, in the self-funded in model- In general, even, right? In general, yeah. So even in the self funded model, it could make sense to pay more than five times. Let's say you found some asset that, you know, normally trades at 10 times, Right, and you, mm-hmm. for some reason, were able to buy it at six times. Well, okay. He, there's an argument to 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 say so maybe oh, software,
0: for instance. Yeah, print.
1: right. So um, I think that's not most deals on the self-funded side, but there are, yeah. there's um, there's uh, exceptions to everything that we're talking about here.
0: Important Treats to say. yeah. Yeah. thanks for for stating it Robert and and just to conclude this chapter on what is the future for you in terms of the pillar elf group will you keep uh, buying uh, additional companies uh, for the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, do you consider exit at at, uh, at a certain time? are you leading this for 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 the long term? Uh, what is your vision for for the pillar elf group?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a good question, Mike. I think what we're doing right now is incredible. Uh, we're providing a higher level of care to the patients that we're taking care of. We're um, we're helping um, create a great work environment for our employees. Um, Where uh, you know, and 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 also helping business owners transition out and retire. And so, um, I think what we're building is amazing. And uh, it's been the most rewarding work experience of my life without without a doubt. And I, I know that, you know, obviously I'm, you know, kind of the boss, but um, employees <laughs> say to me and uh, other people I work with frequently that it's the, you know, the best place they've ever worked. And so that's okay. just, it's awesome to hear, right? And I, I love what I'm doing right now. So, you know, um, we'll have to see what the, the future plans are, but right now, we, you know, I think everyone, the investors are happy. My business partners are happy. I'm happy. Our employees seem to be very happy. So um, I think we'll continue doing what we're doing and hopefully taking care of, you know, more and more patients uh, and providing higher and higher quality care uh, to those patients. So um, yeah, we'll we'll just have to see, you know, what's next. Yeah.
0: Got it. So it it is important that it's not all about just acquisitions and uh the financial reward is a consequence of the vision of the company and of the service that you do, right? So it's important that at the end of the day, sometimes we start using this m a jargon, but it's the same that we do in startups. So there is a purpose behind what we are doing. There is a vision, there is a mission, and, uh, and there is also, I like to say that strategy is very personal, right? There is no right or wrong. There is what do you really want to do and what's what touches you and what you want to impact right So of course, yeah the, the, we might have decisions that make more sense or less sense from a, from a vision and a financial perspective uh, but a lot of them are very uh, personal so different entrepreneurs would take uh, different decisions according to their uh, own purpose incentives and even better, so when we have a, a leadership team leading the company, uh, the, the opinion of the leadership team and the entire team will be also important for the future. And that's the moment that maybe the founders start sharing even more uh, the future uh, of the company with, with the leadership team and, and the whole team about what's next for us uh, as a team. It starts being less me and more we, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah
0: sorry about the philosophical parts. I, I like, <laughs> I,
1: I feel well, much, the, more, the only,
0: much better here. The only <laughs> part of that,
1: I, I do that. I do think there are bad strategies in this space. Okay. You know, I've seen them first. Pers- what I think, you know, a lot of it is personal, you know, and, um, there, yeah. so, um, to your point, right. Uh, I think that a lot of it is, you know, personal, like, Hey, you know, whatever your mission is, that can be your personal thing, you know, but, um, you do need to uh, you know, I think that there are good and bad strategies in certain industries, you know, I you know, I've observed that personally,
0: yeah. so thanks for for challenging me uh, challenging me <laughs> on, on that. I, I really love everything uh, else I agree uh, with. yeah <laughs> except yeah. that part. <laughs> it's it's stated on on the on the episode. We can have just one episode about that topic, and it'd be great <laughs> <laughs> to debate about the different arguments on that and, and also to change my mind, always always. <laughs> and uh, so let, let's move to... So the first chapter has been started in 2018, uh, and, and you keep leading uh, Pillar Elf Group. And in 2020, you decided to uh, found uh, Search uh, Investment Group, uh, SIG. Uh, as as you uh, and let me know why did you let us know why why did you decide to start SIG with with what purpose you have already introduced a bit uh, SIG during the um, our conversation but uh, yeah let us know a little bit more about SIG and, and your mission with SIG
1: absolutely yeah thanks Mike um, so when I did my first you know acquisition or acquisitions. Um, you know, I, uh, I had had a, a, a strong operational background. I had led business units before, and, uh, but I had never bought a small company before. And um, what we realized, I think my business partner and I, and going through that, and our third business partner also um, in SIG, um, what we realized was that there were a lot of people um, who were tired of working in corporate America, um, who had great leadership experience um, and who could be very successful owning their own small business, but had never bought a small business before, yeah. right? And um, and so we created SIG to help people like we were, um, people who had you know operational experience and potential, uh, actually go out and buy a small business. That's where we help, right? The M and A expertise, and so yeah. we help you know, entrepreneurs uh, find uh, target companies, submit offers on those target companies. Um, Once an offer is accepted, we help them get through due diligence. Um, So, you know, the quality of earnings, so the financial diligence, the operational diligence, the legal diligence, all of that, we help with all those different areas. Um, You know, we've got an M&A attorney and a forensic accounting firm that we work with on pretty much every deal we do. And uh, and then we help them raise equity. So we help them find the right debt partner, uh, the right lender, and we also help them find uh, equity. And we invest in the deals ourselves directly um, in, on the equity side. And then we also have a network of investors that we work with on all of our deals. And we uh, uh, we raise the, the remaining equity through those through those investors. And so we you know all the way up to closing, we help. Um, The entrepreneurs get from the day they decided they want to buy a business all the way up to to actually acquiring it. We started SIG two and a half years ago, roughly, and um, that was the whole purpose of uh, it—to help you know people who wanted to own their own small business do it. And we've helped sixteen acquire companies uh, since we started. And you know, like I mentioned earlier, on average, companies with EBITDA of two point four million. Uh, a purchase price of about pretty close to four times EBITDA, and uh, and on average they've kept 72% of the common equity ownership of the acquisition. So um, we're we're really proud of those results, and um, feel like we've you know helped 16 people you know pretty much change their lives. So um, that's what we uh, started out to do, and and so far we've had a lot of fun and uh, success doing it. So.
0: That's yeah. really an amazing story, and it's, uh, it's incredible, 16 acquisitions in uh, two years uh, and a half. So uh, everyone who is going through search or has been through search and is now operating their company know that usually uh, searchers go through the process over at least 12 to, and, and a lot of times, 24, even in some cases, 30 months and uh so in in almost 30 months the same you 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 helped to acquire 16 companies so just to put in perspective uh how amazing it is because for the ones who don't have benchmarks that this might be good or bad but 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 for for the ones who know it uh, it is uh, really really um impressive and and i love the mission and and the vision behind what what you guys are doing and of course you you support the... Yeah. Um, the self-funded uh, model, right, Robert? And in terms of what what is the compensation, or what? And we understood developed position for the um, for the entrepreneur, right? So, for instance, in my case, I'm 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 super strong as uh, I, I I believe at least people pay me for for that as a as an operator and and advisor. But uh, I admit in public that I'm not the, the best person in in M So uh, it should be a good fit. To have someone to support me in the MA side, even just to tackle the fears, right? To not go through the through it for the first time, and to, to be also it would not make sense uh, to not go alone through the the through it uh, for the first time, because then I will be in a bit much better position if I have the right people uh, around me. So what would be kind of the compensation that I would need to pay to SIG to, to be able to, to work with, with SIG? Or what would be the criteria that I need to add also for, for being able to work with you guys?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with uh, that the criteria piece, uh, Mike. So we, uh, we look for folks um, who have a strong operational background, just like what you were speaking to. Um, someone who we're confident once they buy a small business, they're going to be successful at running it, growing it. Um, And so, um, you know, probably 60% of the people we work with have MBAs um, and the other 40% have strong operational or corporate, you know, some type of corporate experience. Um, And so um, that's, that's typically what the backgrounds look like. Uh, We really like Working with people who have previously been in leadership positions, um, because generally speaking, if you're buying a small business with a million of EBITDA or more, you're going to have to lead people. Um, and in all the companies we buy, you know, we're not buying companies where the owner is the sole employee, um, and, and wouldn't, that's extremely high risk, by the way. Generally, <laughs> so uh, we wouldn't usually recommend people buy, you know, companies that revolve around the owner because the owners at some point probably going to be stepping out of the business. Right. So um, we, we like, you know, folks, like I said, with leadership experience um, and, uh, and, and folks who have proven that they have grit, right. The ability to uh, to get through difficult circumstances, that's important. Uh, and we have uh, prospective entrepreneurs take a personality test called uh, predictive index, which looks at your personality from like a work environment perspective. And, you know, one of the things it measures is really how entrepreneurial you are uh, as a person, right? And so um, a lot of venture capital firms and private equity firms use a similar uh, tool. They use either predictive index or like culture index or something similar to that to see how well suited the um the prospective ceo or uh prospective mm-hmm. entrepreneur or um yeah. you know it is for for uh what they're about to embark on and uh, we do a similar thing because uh, we we have to work with people who are very comfortable with you know they like a lot of autonomy they uh they like to um kind of set their own direction uh they um, Typically have to be pretty comfortable with ambiguity. Um, mm-hmm. So um, in, in this space, you have to be comfortable with ambiguity because if right. you're not, you'll never you'll never buy a company, okay. you know. Um, and uh, and there's a few other considerations also. But um, so I mean, we look at a lot of things. And when we interview prospective candidates, they complete an application. The, the process is usually they reach out to us, they complete an application, uh, which is. Pretty simple, the application only takes like maybe five to 10 minutes. Um, we do uh, an initial interview with one of the partners or with the uh, senior associate in our firm. And then they do, uh, the next step would be to do a, the predictive index, which is the personality test. Uh, they take a, a small um, um, like intelligence test, which you know we don't really highly, you know, put a lot of weight on that, but that's part of the predictive index that we do. And then um, and then they give us references. So we do a reference check and obviously we do like a, you know, a background check. And then we do a, a full company, inter- a full firm interview where they interview with all three partners and well, really the full firm in one, like a Zoom meeting. Oh. And um, that's usually about an hour. And part of that is just getting to know each other. And the other part is, um, you know, uh, asking some difficult questions, you know? So some criteria we have to have for applicants are they've gotta be willing to move. Uh, They can't just, you know, be willing to search within 10 minutes of their home. (laughs) (laughs) Because it'd be very difficult to ensure success if you weren't willing to, to move areas. There's just not enough high quality companies for sale within 10 minutes of most people's homes. You got to be willing to move. You need to be willing to look at multiple industries to acquire. So you can't just focus in and say, "Hey, I'm going to buy, you know, um, a plumbing company and nothing else." Um, We encourage people to look at multiple opportunities, multiple spaces. They they need to be opportunistic, and they need to be searching full time. So they can't have a full time job and do this in their free time because we dedicate a ton of our time to helping the searchers we work with. We only work with six searchers at any given time. So we cap our cohort at six and that allows each partner only two searchers per partner because there's only three partners. So we're able to spend plenty of time with the searchers that we work with uh, to help them, you know, potentially, you know, multiple times a day when deals, you know, start to heat up and, and move along. We're on the phone or communicating via email or even in person flying out to, you know, looking at targets. You know, it can be, you know, quite a bit of, Uh, a high touch uh, type of support. So um, we're very selective because of that, because we have to be careful about how we use our time. Um, We're not not like some, so some of the like traditional search investors, for example, they'll have, you know, (laughs) you know, 20, 30 investor searchers that they're investing in, at any given time We're you know, we have to spend a lot of time with the searchers that we work with. And so we have to limit the amount of searchers we work with and we have to be very careful about um, how we spend our time. So that's why we have a process like that. But after going through all that process, we would um, make the searcher an offer to come on board uh, as an SIG searcher. And uh, and then we kick off their search with them and help them start reaching out to intermediaries and help them start you know, reaching out to business owners and and start sourcing deals. So that's what the the whole process and criteria looks like. Right.
0: And and in terms of the offer that that you give to the SIG searcher, is is this uh, typically, uh, you know, a regular compensation uh, or uh, I'm not not sure how to call it compensation package because it's a partnership. uh, Great question. Uh, Yeah. uh, So it is. uh, How does that work?
1: It's, yeah. It's um, it's kind of tailor-made. It depends on what program the searcher chooses and it depends on what deal they end up getting. So um, we have three programs. Uh, the first program is one where um, the searcher um, would come on board with us and they would fund their own cost of living. They wouldn't get paid a salary. They would fund their due diligence costs. So the attorney and accounting firm I told you about, they would pay for those services themselves out of pocket, and then they would get reimbursed at closing for those services. But um, point being, they've got to really pay their own way. All costs are borne by them. That's the first program we have. The second program we have is one where we will actually pay um, the searcher a salary. It's very small. Um, so historically, it's been two or $3,000 a month, but it's just enough to help pay rent you know, or some basic living expenses and allow them to search for a longer period comfortably. Uh, And then we uh, will also cover all the legal fees and all the accounting fees. So they don't have to come out of pocket for any of those fees um, during the search. Um, And then um, the third program we have is one where, again, we don't cover any of the costs, but the searcher goes and finds a company themselves, gets it under LOI, Uh, So they didn't actually search with us. They just have already found the company. They got it under LOI. They come to us and say, I need capital. I I can't, you know, how how do I structure the deal? How do I raise capital for this? And we'll help folks in that type of situation within a pretty quick turnaround, like, you know, 45, 60 days actually go and raise equity and equity capital and find a lender. And so, in those situations, uh, we can pretty quickly help somebody who's already found a deal um, that didn't work with us before, but they've already, you know, found a company to buy. We'll help them actually raise the capital to do so. And um, depending on what program they choose, and and also what company they end up buying, you know, the terms uh, look different to working with us. Um, but I'll say, in general, you know, we view ourselves more as partners than we do as like. A, a service provider, like a, you know, like an attorney or a, um, or a QV provider, you know, or an accountant, um, because we're really with the searcher uh, all the way through it. And, um, and, uh, you know, so that's, uh, I think, an important distinction. And we're with the searcher afterwards, too. Um, So we, uh, we sit on boards of a lot of the companies that we help acquire, we don't have to sit on the board. Sometimes there's better people to be on the board than us, uh, because maybe they have, you know direct industry experience for example um but um you know so that's kind of our model yeah
0: it's it's kind of a, a percentage of the equity because you guys also invest in in the majority of of the deals plus a premium for being partners on 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 the deal right so in in general terms uh, without without talking about numbers because it will depend on on the program but that's a good way to state it. Uh, Robert, feel free to, to correct me as always.
1: We, we always invest in the deals. Um, well, yeah. I shouldn't say always, most deals we invest in. Um, and it just depends on what how the equity raise goes. So yeah. usually, I mean, with every deal that we're doing with an entrepreneur, we're, um, we're always confident in, in the company and the entrepreneur if we're going to take it to investors or if we're helping the entrepreneur buy the company. Um, and so, Oftentimes we'll invest directly, but we don't always get the opportunity to. So, for example, sometimes we'll we'll take um, a company to investors, and um, we'll have like a family office come in, and they'll offer to write the entire equity check. And if that happens, you know, the the family office may want to provide all the equity. In which case, you know, we we don't invest, um, and that's okay. You know, and we also have situations where. Um, We've had several where we've raised all the equity in like 48 hours and uh, large chunks of the equity come from, you know, potentially uh, high net worth individuals with direct industry experience. And honestly, those are going to be better investors and board members for the entrepreneur than we are, Um, because, you know, what we're we're really, um, you know, our expertise is in the industries that we're in, which is, you know, going to be like, you know, home care, home health, hospice, or, you know, our business partners in grant writing and government services. Um, but, you know, if you're buying a, comp- a software company, we have zero experience in software. Mm-hmm. And um, it would be much better to have software board members and software, you know, investors in your deal, if possible. Right. Um, so, you know, every deal looks different for us to to be, you know,
0: uh, standard. Yeah, yeah, Got it. yeah. Sounds good, and uh, it's incredible how time fly. And but we we had so much to cover. Uh, here it's almost uh two firms, right? And uh, and and so many models in terms of acquisition, entrepreneurship, um. But just going quickly through uh the traditional model because we talked a lot about self-funded um and uh, and we also mentioned the traditional model. So typically here, Robert, can you kind of. Uh, in in summary, explain uh, what is the difference from the self-funded to the traditional uh, model. Uh, so the uh, yeah. I'd say
1: you know the big difference is going to be on the on the traditional model. You're usually raising like half of, on the average is like close to half a million uh, to actually fund the search, right? So you get paid like a full salary, you know, mm-hmm. like can be $150,000 a year. You know, I think the average is somewhere between $125,000, $175,000 a year. And then all of your due diligence costs will be covered out of that money and all your travel costs and the cost of living and everything. Not all costs of living, but a lot of them. Right. And so, um, so uh, you know, uh, that's, that's a model where you raise money before you find a deal. That's different than our model. In our model, you don't, raise money before you find the deal, you raise money once you've already found the deal. And that puts you in a much different, you know, position as a searcher um, for many reasons. Number one, if you've got a great deal that you're showing to investors, it gives you a better negotiating position, right? And so on the self-funded model, um, you know, you raise money once you found the deal, you usually use the SBA program, although not always. And, you um, you know, you're typically ending up with uh, a larger amount of control and ownership in the company. So like I mentioned, you know, SIG's experience has been on average 72% ownership of the common equity and then also majority control of the board um, with every deal we've done, uh, except for one, which was a 9 million EBITDA deal, but he didn't get majority control, but that was okay because it was a 9 million EBITDA deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um Everyone else, the other 15 have have been that way. Um, Now on the traditional side, you don't, you you know, you get this half a million dollars to help pay for your search. Once you buy the company though, you've already agreed to terms with those initial investors. And so when you end up acquiring the company, you get eight, this is the the standard is eight and a third ownership at closing, eight and a third if you hit certain benchmarks and eight and a third, over time. So it usually vests over, you know, several years or at closing when you sell, okay? And so if everything goes great and the company, you know, triples in size and you sell, you know, you might end up with um, you know, at the top end 25% ownership as a as an individual entrepreneur. So, um that means you've got to buy a larger company and you've got to buy a company that's going to grow, right? Um, and so, uh, cause the average uh, traditional searcher doesn't end up with even 25%, they end up with less than that because they don't hit the hurdles or they don't stay with the company until it sells. Um, so, um, you know, it, it makes a lot less financial sense unless you're buying a larger company or one that's going to grow significantly um, to, to do that model because you end up with so much less ownership in the company. And those, those, that model can be great for high growth industries or larger companies um, or ones where the entrepreneur doesn't have um, the ability to fund their cost of living, right? So they have no choice but to take money on these terms um, right. because uh, the, the economics are you know, definitely not as attractive on a similarly sized deal. So like if you bought a 2.5 million EBITDA company using the self-funded model, Versus the same company using the traditional model, hands down. If everything if everything else was the same, the the self funded searcher would make you know significantly more in the end than the traditional searcher would. But the traditional search model will allow you to buy companies that the self funded model that I described earlier really won't. Um, so you could go buy a you know a SaaS company for seven times EBITDA with the traditional model. And if you use if you try to do that with the self-funded model, you could still do that with the self-funded model, but you're not going to end up with 72% ownership of the company because it's just not going to work mathematically with leverage and you know investor terms. So um, the traditional model is, you know, different in in quite a few ways. There's also um, almost never SBA debt used in the traditional model. The traditional model usually utilizes commercial debt. Um, and the percentage of uh, debt in the transactions is lower. So, you know, traditional model thing, you're buying like a six or seven times even purchase price, and you're probably going to have like 40 to 60% debt, okay? Um, And the rest is going to come in in the form of equity, and you're going to end up with, you know, very common that you'd end up with, you know, eight and a third, I mean, the standard model is eight and a third percent right. ownership of the, of the equity at closing. Um, so the, those are the main differences.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So everything going well with, with the, with the traditional, uh, search fund model, you will get almost a third of, uh, of the average of the, Self-funded uh, model with with a, with your experience with SIG, of course, not not the general uh, self-funded uh, deal, but uh, you might we might also say that maybe uh, it is also the common, um, let's say, uh, equity package that entrepreneur gets, even if he if he does it alone without without SIG, right? Or at least it will be uh-huh. higher than the the twenty five percent.
1: So if you look at self-funded deals outside of SIG, they actually look quite different. Um, so we did a study on self-funded deals um, outside of SIG. Wow. Uh, it's yeah. the only study on the self-funded space that I'm, I'm aware of in existence. It's on our website. And we, we found, I think it was 270 something uh, self-funded searchers. And we you know, basically collected all kinds of statistics on what their deal terms look like and what their deals look like. And self-funded searchers um, as a whole, um, the ownership and the size of the companies, and, you know, it's quite different actually than the SIG cohort. Um, So for a few different reasons. Um, But uh, one big reason is because self-funded searchers are often buying companies that are much smaller than what SIG would yeah. yeah, which makes a significant difference, right? If you own seventy-five percent of a company with two hundred thousand of EBITDA, that's a much different outcome than owning seventy-five percent of a company with two and a half million of right. EBITDA, right? right?
0: Yeah. So on on average, do you, do you remember what what has been the results of the reports that you uh, that that you guys? You're
1: putting liked. me on the spot here, Mike. I okay. I do not no the averages. So we, um, but
0: we so will find out. Is, by going yeah. to the to the self-funded study, yeah, I don't
1: remember the averages, but um, it, it's significantly smaller than the statistics I gave you on SIG. I know that, um, but the study is available for free. It's a free download from our website. Yeah. So if you go to uh, you go to our website, searchinvestgroup.com, and just go to the study tab, um, you can download it for free. Yeah,
0: awesome. Thank you, uh, Robert. So let's go to the last segment of the show where I ask, we ask you a quick question and you give me a, a brief answer. So let's start with, with the first one. Uh, Robert, if you'd have the opportunity to have a coffee with yourself in 2018, when you uh, started the Pillar Health Group as acquisition entrepreneur, what advice would you offer to your younger self?
1: So if I was, you know, giving advice to my young, younger self, I think it would be um, pretty general advice, but it would be just to be open-minded um, because there are so many different models in business and just in life that, you know, can work. And a lot of folks, well, like myself, you know, we grew up in a certain environment, maybe both of your, empo- your parents were employees, and it, it feels like you know, getting a job with a fortune 500 company and being an engineer is the way to go. And that's how you're going to be successful. Right. Or maybe you grew up and both of your parents were small business owners and you feel like, you know, the, the way to be successful is owning your own small business. There's all, you know, and that's like your concept of, you know, what success is, you know, um, I think that being open-minded and exploring multiple avenues and, um, trying to not let your personal bias factor in because all of us have personal biases, right? It, it's, it's nature, right? It's, yeah. you know, yeah. you're, you're gonna be biased to the environment you're born in. Um, trying to push yourself to be uncomfortable constantly and to be open-minded and think about new ideas and new models is really important. So I think that that would be the advice I would give myself.
0: And that's a good point. So I with with this episode, we wanted to give you another way for your career, not saying that you know, acquisition entrepreneurship is for you or VC uh, is for you. It's really to be able to play the devil's advocate and see. We have been discussing VC for the last 300 plus episodes. Uh, what about acquisition uh, entrepreneurship? So that's a, a new way. And I think that that's what we want to have here on the show. Is being able to discuss different facts, different arguments, different perspectives. So thanks for making that point, Robert. So second one, what are you the most proud of on your journey so far?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there's a few things about Pillar Health Group that I'm really proud of. Um, so, um, you know, one thing would be, um, we have a hospice division and we take care of folks who are, you know, extremely vulnerable um, and, and families that are going through the most difficult times of their lives, right, where they've got, you know, maybe a, a, a parent um, of young children who's passing away or, you know, really, you know, pretty sad situations, right, or, or a, you know, a love family member and, um, you know, or or someone, you know, even without a family who's passing away, you know, we, we are um, taking care of someone during the most important time in their life personally and in a family's life potentially. Um, so our business is not delivering pizzas, right? Our business is taking care of people during those times. And um, I think the, the proudest moments and most rewarding ones are hearing you know, from family members, um, whether it's hospice or it, even in our home care or home health division, when family members come to us and say, you know, you did such an amazing job taking care of my family member. Thank you. Um, you made that situation so much easier for us and our family to go through. Um, that's, that's pretty incredible to hear from people. So, um, yeah, that's, that's probably the, the most rewarding and, and proudest part of, of what I've done over the last five years, for sure.
0: Worst advice ever received, Robert.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Good question. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I I got some really bad advice when I was working at as an engineer. I uh, I had a senior executive told me told me I should um, go get a. Um, I, it was some some like um, local. Um, it was it was either an online MBA program or a local MBA, and I'm so glad I didn't do that. Um, to be honest with you, because. You know, MBAs are kind of like law degrees these days, you know, a lot of people have those degrees. I'm gonna be really opinionated here, Mike. You know, a lot of, you know, unless you have like a, there's a a lot of MBAs, you know, that don't do much for your career, honestly. And there's a lot of law degrees and a lot of other degrees that don't do much for your career. So if you are gonna go down that path and, you know, let me say, you can be very successful without a master's degree period, right? And a lot of people are successful without them. Yep. But if you're going to go down that route, and you're going to spend that kind of money, you should make sure that it's a program that is one that is going to pay, is going to have a return for you personally, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was pretty bad advice, I think. Um, and uh, I'm really glad I, I did consider that actually for for a minute. And I'm really glad I didn't go down that route, because I wouldn't have the network I have today, um, or really been exposed to some of the concepts we talked about earlier, right? And, and had, you know, those concepts put in front of me, um, if I hadn't gone the the direction I had gone, um, because like at, at Harvard business school, for example, you know, the self-funded search path and entrepreneurship through acquisition is really heavily, you know, taught. And, um, and so I, I'm, I'm glad I ended up not going that direction. I think that that was probably not very good career advice, but, the truth of the matter is that executive um, fell in, I think, you know, the way I think about it is I think that person fell into the camp of, you know, probably didn't have an open mind and didn't, hadn't been exper- you know, exposed to outside uh, opportunities. And, you know, they had themselves, I think, gotten, you know, an MBA like that. And uh, they had had a successful career. And so, you know, they were giving advice to other people based on their own personal experience. Yeah. Um, So when I give advice to other people, I like to caveat it a lot and just tell them, look, everything I tell you is biased from me, because like, this is the way I did it, right? And so another thing is you'll talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and they'll give you advice and they'll act like that's the only way to to be successful. Like, you've got to go, if I came on this program and told people, you've got to go the self-funded route and buy a company to be successful, you know, that would be my personal experience, but that's not true. There's a lot of people who right. have been successful going many, many different routes. So, um, you know, I, I think that's probably where he was coming from. It wasn't from, a, he wasn't trying to give me bad advice. You know, it was just biased. Yeah. Advice. Yeah.
0: And uninformed. So. And now the resources, your favorite book, business or non-business, Yurisa?
1: So, um, Man, I'm, I'm actually blanking on the name of it. Um, uh, oh, it's what called it? Everybody Wins. It's, it's probably not my favorite book, but it's the book I finished last. And it's a yeah. really neat book about the guy who founded my private equity firm that I worked at after school. Wow. Um, and so he, um, he went out, he was a chemical engineer, and he bought a bunch of petrochem and refining businesses, rolled them up, and they were, well, they were ethylene plants, actually and the price of ethylene was really low. The price of ethylene spiked after he rolled them up and he sold and they made like, I don't know, 45 times capital for their investors, something like that in the span of like 18 months. And so that's like, that was the genesis of the private equity firm I went to go work for is this entrepreneur who had been so successful at doing these industrial deals. And this book, they actually did two Harvard case studies on him and what he would do. And this book is all about his life and, um, and what he would do to help, you know, the employees that were working for him. So one big thing was that the name of the book is Everybody Wins. And um, the idea is um, the employees would benefit immensely from these acquisitions also. Everyone thinks of private equity and like leverage buyouts as being, you know, all for, you know, the investors and all for the, the PE guys. But they can be, they actually can be, and, and politics has really hurt the image of leverage buyouts, but they can actually be very beneficial to the employees also. I know that our employees um, you know, have a better work environment now in Pillar Health Group. And example in this book is um, he gave equity uh, in the, that one deal I told you about with the huge returns. He gave equity to every employee. And so the day that the company was sold, the janitor got a check for $100,000. And this was in uh, like 19, uh, it was like in the 80s when this happened. So oh, that was a lot of money. money. Um, lot. And so yeah. that's the whole idea. Everybody wins, right? And that's that's the right way to, to do business, right? Um, so that, you know, you take, you know, you, you, you do take care of, of of everybody and, you know, you don't have, certain people, you know, just taking all the rewards. So right. uh, I love the book and um, it's, all, it's all about, you know, um, how uh, leverage buyouts and that form of capitalism can actually benefit, um, you know, many, many members of our society and make businesses better. So, love it. yeah.
0: Your favorite movie or series?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I just finished Succession on HBO. Have you seen right. that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. A great it's really one. really entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. And finally, your favorite uh, podcasts, excluding this one. <laughs> <laughs> of course.
1: Uh, well, Scale of Value is an awesome podcast. So, Mike, thank you for what you do. I've really enjoyed listening to some of your episodes. Um, you, I uh, I'd say... There's a there's a podcast out there called Freakonomics Radio. Have you heard about that? It's really popular. Yeah. They just cover all kinds of random subjects, you know, right. from a somewhat scientific viewpoint. It's not super scientific, but you know, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, so I, I really enjoy that that podcast. Like to listen to it, you know, in free time. So that's
0: amazing, yeah. Robert. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time, and and congrats for for what you do.
1: Thank you, Mike, and and thanks for what you do also.
0: And to our community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life easier as you scale up your business. See you soon and keep scaling.